Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Stasha Gomenek, who is going to enlighten us about two, a, a synergy of two epidemics. One is the vitamin D epidemic and the other is a sleep epidemic and how they connect. Uh, I believe I was probably one of the first physician journalists to catalyze the interest in vitamin D at about year 2000. And and I thought I knew a lot about it, and but I wasn't aware of this connection. I, I met Dr. Gomenek at, uh, at an ACAM event earlier in 2000, and or late in 2019, and uh, ACAM is the American College for the Advancement of Medicine, and her topic was uh, ways to improve your sleep, and I thought I knew most of those ways, but she really surprised me, and she's going to present some novel information here. So welcome, and thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So I, I think the crux of your argument, uh, research, not argument, but research, revolves around the connection between vitamin D and sleep and an impairment in the brainstem when one is vitamin D deficient. So uh, you're a neurologist by training, too. I neglected to mention that, an MD. I am. And uh, you've actually, got, this is not just a hypothesis you formulated, but you've actually, I think, treated over 5,000, 7,000 patients with this. Yes, which is quite, yeah. quite a substantial number, and you've published papers on it. So why don't you tell us your journey? You're a very good storyteller. I was very impressed with your ability to uh, present a compelling uh, presentation that was really one of the best at the whole event. So that's why I invited you to come on. Because Great. I'm glad. I'm glad you thought so. I think um, people enjoy your story. And it is kind of a story. And one of the, one of the really difficult parts of this is that most of us uh, feel like we stay up with the current publications and that we read a lot of articles and therefore we think that we know about vitamin D. And frankly, I was never interested in vitamin D. I was interested in sleep. So I got interested in sleep. I got frustrated by the fact that most of my young, healthy patients, so I was sending a different population for sleep studies. It was daily headache sufferers. They were young, healthy females to start with. And uh, over a period of years, what came out of that was most of them didn't have sleep apnea, but they just didn't have enough REM sleep. They didn't have enough rapid eye movement sleep. And there was nobody publishing anything about that. Not only was it not on the report, on the front page, it was hidden within the study. And I had to actually learn that it was in there because my pulmonologist pointed it out to me. But over time, I then did a lot of sleep studies in teenagers, kids, and the great majority of the relatively healthy people, by that I mean they didn't have terrible sleep apnea, they had a neurologic problem, that's why they were seeing me, they all had lower amount of deep sleep than what they needed. So the presumption was, oh, they're complaining of being tired, they have epilepsy, they have daily headache, they have things that are linked to our ability 
to repair our brain every night. So once finding that they had no REM, I was pretty much stuck. I was stuck with using CPAP devices for those who had apnea and, and sleeping pills. And that was very unsatisfying for myself and the patients. And then pretty much by accident, I stepped into a finding that one of the young headache patients who was extremely tired and had absolutely no deep sleep on her sleep study, zero. She slept for 10 hours, but she did not get into the healing phases of sleep, and she had a B12 deficiency. So by accident, we then did B12 levels. I added vitamin D to that. Uh, over a period of time, it turned out that everybody's vitamin D was low, and that in and of itself is not enough to get excited about, except that it turns out there are numerous articles showing the anatomy of the brainstem where we actually flip in and out of the phases of sleep. The timers that are the clock um, nuclei for our sleep and the nuclei that get us appropriately paralyzed are covered with vitamin D receptors. And that was already published in actually the 1980s, but no one paid attention. So then the next struggle was, how is it that this guy named Walter Stump has already published an entire context in which to understand why vitamin D is linked to hibernation, sleep, reproduction, our metabolism, why isn't that recognized as the way we should think about vitamin D? Because the logical thing is, oh, if D runs hibernation because we have to hibernate at far north or south latitudes in order to put up with no food, then if we move indoors and our D is low, then it's gonna have an effect on our sleep. So that turned out to be the prompting discovery that led Walter, who was the scientist, Walter Stump, who was the scientist who published the original articles, and the clinical part, which was myself with my patients over a two-year span, to publish in 2012 the first article suggesting that the epidemic of sleep disorders of many kinds, not just sleep apnea, insomnia, waking tired, movement disorders in sleep, all of the sleep disorders are linked to vitamin D deficiency. And that was actually the first discovery. Any questions or comments about that piece? Yeah, the, when you had your initial observations on the, sleep, on the EEG that you were doing, uh, was it just a deficiency in deep sleep or was it deficiency in deep and REM sleep? Both, mostly, the, I think that the the mildest form, and this, this part is not completely clear to me yet, and this part will, I think, need more scientific study, but most of my patients who I thought had relatively mild disease, okay, so these are young, healthy females in their 30s, the only thing that's happened to them is they had a couple of babies, and they have reduced REM. So that was a finding that was the most common now that I've been doing this for over 10 years, there are a couple of subsets where the patient will have reduced deep sleep and that'll be their primary presentation now that we have Fitbits available. So now I'm, I'm a sleep coach. Now I have a lot of clients who have nightly monitoring of the phases of sleep they're in, which I didn't have when I was doing this work. It's really cool. So most of the time, my original publications were about people who had reduced REM. Both deep sleep and REM sleep, I believe, are affected by this D deficiency, 
But I, more than that, I can't say because I don't really have good scientific study of that yet. Okay. If we just, if you wouldn't mind just taking a short tangent on this, because I think it's appropriate. Uh, there's fitness trackers out there and you mentioned Fitbit and there's also Aura Ring, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which can monitor, give us an assessment of sleep. And I'm wondering as a neurologist, how you would compare the quality of the sleep data that's generated as, as to tracking stages of sleep relative to an EEG. Uh, I, I actually think they're pretty good. And the first thing that really struck me was my patients would come in with these Fitbits and because my protocol was wrapped into getting paralyzed. So the most important part of using vitamin D is vitamin D and other components come together to make acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is the neurotransmitter that allows us to get paralyzed correctly. So most of what I was interested in about the person's sleep is when are they paralyzed? Because the only time we get paralyzed is when we're in deep sleep slow wave sleep or REM sleep. So the Fitbit and the Aura Ring and most of the other trackers have called slow wave sleep, deep sleep. That's a little confusing when you look at the sleep literature, the formal sleep literature, because the sleep literature calls both slow wave sleep and REM sleep, deep sleep. Both of those you get paralyzed. Now, I don't really call, care what you call it. What I do care is, is the recording device accurate in being able to say that this person is paralyzed. And as far as I can tell from my clients, there's an occasional person who doesn't think it really relates well to how they do. Mm -hmm. But as far as I can tell, the actigraphic measurement or the movement measurements they're using in most of those um, tracking devices are actually pretty accurate. That's good to know. And just for those listening, I would strongly discourage using a Fitbit for a, a, two primary reasons. One is that it, it emits a green light which could interfere with your sleep quality. But more importantly, it was just purchased by Google, and we know that Google is evil. <laughs> and they are going to use that data. To, Everything, including your yeah. sleep. Yeah, so you do not want to give this data to Google. Do not use Fitbit. Just get, make the investment and go to an Aura Ring, which I think is a superior device, and certainly much more convenient. I so anyway, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the interruption, but I, just thought, I thought it was an important uh, mm -hmm. point. So why don't you continue with this amazing uh, observations that you have because it really is incredibly intriguing. So the first thing that happened was I thought I had just discovered something totally exciting and it was going to fix everybody and we all got a little bit better. We didn't get completely fixed and by the end of the second year, soon after we published, I started to fail and I was in my middle 50s um, starting to be perimenopausal, my early 50s and, and so I was doing the same thing my patients were, were doing. So about the second year of using vitamin D, and there's a lot to know about vitamin D. We could spend several hours on vitamin D and dosing. But at the end of the second year, even after establishing that the blood level of 60 to 80 was like magic, the patients could say, my sleep is better now than it was X, two months ago. And you could easily track what their blood level was corresponding to when their sleep is better. So this is all based on, not on sleep studies, this is based on the patient coming in and saying, you know, I'm sleeping better, okay? Now, one thing I'll comment about that is, we as neurologists have taught people that the only way they can know about their sleep is by doing a supervised sleep study, and that's not true. Human beings can talk. 
they have very valuable information. I think what they say about their body is infinitely more valuable than a single night of a supervised sleep study. They cannot tell you if they're apneic. They cannot tell you what their oxygen levels are. So it's not that I believe that sleep studies are not of use. They're of great use. So at the end of two years, we're all failing again. Sleep is getting worse. Pain is getting worse. Lots of different kinds of pain, musculoskeletal pain, joint pain. I had two gals who only had um, daily headaches that were both seeing me for that complaint. And they both started within a month of each other. That was the creepy thing within a month of one another. So they're both using vitamin D for the same period of time. They have nothing else to do with each other. And they both start to complain of burning in their hands and feet, which as a neurologist, my subspecialty area is neuropathy. So one, I know that B12 is the most common presentation, B12 deficiency. And I also knew they were already on B12. So I was kind of stuck not knowing what to say to them. And a patient brought me a book about B5, pantothenic acid, and um, I was not very open-minded. Unlike you, Joe, I am not. I was not very interested in vitamins, and I was a little kind of frightened of them because I really didn't feel that I was knowledgeable. So it took me a while to read that book. But the book was about using uh, B5 panathenic acid to help with the pain of rheumatoid arthritis. And it was written in the 90s. But luckily, the patient brought it to me because the author commented that not only did the pain get better, but their sleep got better. So she was really bringing it to me because she had noticed that I was so fixated on sleep. So here's another vitamin. And in the meantime, I'm reading about everything I can about sleep. And nobody's publishing anything about how does our brain actually function. Everything's been focused on the airway. How does our brain actually transition into these phases? It's true that there are multiple neurotransmitters that are active. How is it that around the planet, not just in the US, but around the planet, humans are failing in droves around a specific time frame. So 1980s and onward. So B5 turns out to be a player. I start to look at the literature about B5. I look at the references in this book and the references are these really wacky scientists who are next door to the Iowa State Prison and they're doing these creepy experiments on these convicts where they're blocking the pantothenic acid in, their, in this tube feeding. So they're doing all these sorts of wacky things that became illegal soon after that. But what they published was if you block the B5 completely from the GI tract, in two weeks, they get four things. They get burning in their hands and feet, they get a funny puppet-like gait, they have stomach issues, and they can't sleep. So all of a sudden I go, wow, this is amazing. This is another vitamin It has to do with sleep. I really didn't have any idea of etiology, but I myself had some peculiar pain. I, I would hurt me to sit at the end of the day. I'm sitting in my chair, my buttocks would hurt. So I run down to the drug emporium and I buy 400 milligrams of pantothenic acid, which is the dose that was said to be the right dose. And because I only remember one thing, which is, if you give one B vitamin, you should give all of them. That's the only thing I got from medical school that I retained. Lucky for me, that turns out to be extremely important. So I go and I get 400 milligrams of this stuff that's supposed to make me better and B100. B100 means all eight, 100 milligrams of each or 100 micrograms. And I take both of them. And over a period of one week, I'm giving it to the patients who are coming back saying, you know, I came to see you for daily headache, but now I ache all over, my joints hurt. So anybody who was having 
re-emergent sleep issues and pain. So I give it out to about 40 people in a week, the recommendations, not the pills, but so they go and they get panathenic acid and they pick up B100. And by the Friday of that week, I have restless legs from morning till night. So my sleep disorder is restless legs. So I realized that I have just made everything about my sleep worse taking the recommended dose of pantothenic acid. So I stopped the 400 milligrams and I go move to just B100, which has 100 milligrams of pantothenic acid. And in a day, I feel totally different. It was the weirdest experience. My pain went away, my sleep got better. And I thought, you know, my other colleagues already think I'm a whack job. I'm not gonna tell anybody about this. So my patients start to come back Several of them were very angry with me and they carried this bottle of panathenic acid in there with them and said, this stuff nearly killed me. And they, 30 out of 40 use the same phrasing. I was so revved up and, and just felt so tense and just really jumpy and I couldn't sleep at all. So I'm giving the recommended dose of this chemical. Luckily- Vitamin, vitamin. Yeah, it's a chemical though. Now the weird Yeah, but it's still it's a it's a, it's identical to the vitamin in the body. Exactly. Yeah. It's I'm getting it off the shelf. That piece is really important. I'm picking up this thing that's in a chemical that doesn't have to be converted. Your point is well taken. This is directly it's acting like my drugs. Mm -hmm. so not only did I notice the uh, immediately that it was different but now the patients are coming back. I feel agitated. I can't sleep. And I'm completely confused by this because they're using the same phrasing. And every single book says there is no such thing as panthenic acid deficiency because it's in every food. Well, if it's in every food in this form, so there's no commentary about that. If it's in every food in this form, then why is this pure chemical acting sort of like an amphetamine in these people? It's bizarre. So, one, I'm struggling with the only part that I know is which, which is in the lay book, which is that panathenic acid becomes coenzyme A that makes cortisol. So for a year or so, I'm thinking, gee, this is a direct connection to all these inflammatory disorders that we're seeing. Not only is autoimmune disease linked to the inflammatory state, but now heart disease, stroke, et cetera, is now thought to be an inflammatory state. So for the first couple of years, I struggled a lot with one, what should the dosing be? But two, what was the mechanism of this? And then something really weird happened. So it turns out over time that B100 was exactly the right dose for me and everybody who'd been on D for two years. So the, the creepy part was it, oh, by the way, those two women with the burning got better in a couple of days. That burning went away immediately. So I don't mean to imply that panathenic acid is the only vitamin deficiency that people have. I personally believe that when we lose our microbiome, we become, we move into a state where we can slowly develop deficiencies in potentially all eight or at least seven out of eight. So backing up just a little bit, what I was stuck with at that point was, gee, these books and everything I can find on the internet says that 400 milligrams is the right dose, but that's not right. All of us felt really awful on 400 milligrams and we felt like magically better on a hundred that leaves us with well what's the right dose 
And I just spent several years with vitamin D realizing that no one really knew what dose, but the literature was terribly flawed. So at that point, what happened was my husband handed me this article about the microbiome that was out of the Economist journal. And the Economist said lots of really important things like, gee, the microbiome really creates itself spontaneously by three months of age if you live outdoors. And those four species are always the same general species. And they come there spontaneously. You really don't give babies probiotics. And every single animal on the planet is running on these four species. And a couple of articles about B vitamins mention that every single one of the B vitamins has a colonic bacteria source and a food source. So my first question was, why is it that it took two years for all these people who are on D to look like they're now developing some other syndrome? It felt to me like I was inducing some new symptoms of pain, especially that burning type pain. So I was inducing a B vitamin deficiency state without a change in diet. So then I start to read these articles saying, well, gee, the bees come from the intestinal bacteria. And I think, wait a minute, these guys are not willing to actually come out and say, well, what if the bees always have come from the microbiome? But if you think about other animals that lie in the ground for four months or six months like bears, clearly if we need a source of bees every day, they're not eating every day. That kind of implies that the microbiome has been an important, maybe not the only source, but a very important source of bees. And in the meantime, two years are going by, I'm reading a whole bunch of articles. It, be, it becomes clear that before the 1980s, there was very good science about the B vitamins. They showed several articles that are about giving oral doses of B5 or B6 and following what the urinary excretion is versus what the blood level is. And it turns out that there are body stores of bees. There are body stores of B6, B5, thiamine, and vitamin C. So one, there's an idea in the background that's percolating in my head saying, oh, maybe I, when giving vitamin D, I've actually made their sleep better, helped them make more repairs. But now as they make more repairs, they've used these building blocks, these B vitamins, and they've used up their stores. And then perhaps when their bacteria are not right, and why did their bacteria go wrong in the first place? So it was my feeling that the vitamin D that I was giving should have fixed everything, okay? I had this very simplistic idea like, oh, we went indoors, we're all vitamin D deficient, we're gonna give it back, everything will get fixed. And there were two or three things that were not fixed, and that was really important. The IBS was not fixed. So then the question is, if I'm gonna hypothesize that the microbiome, because by the way, Joe, you and I are in the same time frame in terms of our training. So the things that were not there in my medical school, uh, we did not have classes about sleep apnea, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, or IBS. And when those started to be reported in the 80s, a lot of us in my age group just went, ah, you know, they don't really know what those are about. So it looks like those things are creeping up in parallel. So I had assumed vitamin D was linked, that was vitamin D was a growth factor for the bacteria. And when I gave it, they would come back, but they didn't. So I got two years, really good levels. IBS is still there. And then I think, gee, if there are four species that make eight B vitamins, maybe they've always hung out as a symbiotic foursome and they feed each other these Bs. 
And that's why it's always that four. And they are really the only ones on this planet who know what the appropriate doses are of these eight very important chemicals. So then I'm thinking, oh, I am taking B100. That means what I'm really doing at the moment is I'm feeding my bacteria, I'm flooding my GI tract with a big doses of Bs and D. The D's been there for two years. Now they have really ready supply of both. What if they grow back? Because I've just recommended this to a bunch of people. So the reason why I took you through what it was like to be on 400 milligrams is what I next saw was not about culturing the GI tract. It was, uh-oh, if those guys grow back, they're going to start making the normal doses of these eight B vitamins that we've lived on for the last 50,000 years. And now you're going to have double the dose. And uh-oh, I'm really interested in what their sleep is like. That's what interests me. So then I started to tell my patients, you know, I'm thrilled that your pain is better and your sleep is better, but I'm a little concerned that if I'm right in my thinking, this B50 or B100 that you're taking is going to bring back the bacteria. You're creating an environment in the GI tract that is supportive of the four species that used to supply each other. So you're giving them what their buddy that used to be next door to them. So I'm inducing them to be the predominant foursome again. And sure enough, three months later, the sleep interruption and the pain comes back. So ultimately, my reasoning was, I don't really care about the bugs so much. I'm a neurologist. What I care about is they appear to make the exactly right doses to feed into the brain to make the brain sleep better. That was the piece that was really interesting to me. Any questions about that? Yeah, I just want to uh, highlight some of the aspects of the, your studies that you didn't mention in that, and to commend you at the same time that uh, you just didn't give a arbitrary vitamin D dose. You gave a dose and then monitored the patients as well you should have, and probably the vast majority of clinical researchers fail to do. They instead decide on some magical dose, like 2,000 units, and say, that's the dose. But, you know, you actually monitored your patients to get them to 60 to 80 nanograms per ml. I couldn't agree more. I think that is a sweet spot. Sadly, you didn't do that for vitamin B, B5, panathenic acid. The reason being that there, and you can go into it, but I don't believe that the the blood levels or the serum levels or the urine levels are, are that accurate. So you really can't get that fine tuning. There certainly isn't a recognized sweet spot of a panathenic acid level. So maybe you can comment on that. And then actually one other question, because you had mentioned that the vitamin D improves the sleep centers in the, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 not the brain stem, the brain stem. Yeah. I was thinking the midbrain, but it's the brain stem. So, I'm wondering, you know, about a year or two ago, we had uh, the Nobel Prize awarded to a few researchers for uh, the circadian clock within the cell. And I'm wondering if you've looked at that and done any investigation about the vitamin D having influence on the receptors in the cells, not just the brainstem. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that, actually. Okay. So um, the first piece is that the B5 levels are not accurate because they don't reflect the stores. There's also something extremely peculiar and interesting about B5, and that is 
that we now have a huge amount of knowledge about the B5 pump. So the pump that pumps it in on the GI tract pumps in alpha lipoic acid, biotin, and pantothenic acid, and they're competitive inhibitors. The next important thing is that the same exact pump is used in the CSF. And it appears to me that one, B5 is a very picky molecule. It is chiral, the only form used in biology, even at the bacteria site. So you're it, in, you're, most of our readers won't know what chiral is. So if you can- Okay, so it has a right-handed and a left-handed form. So just say, it's, they're really picky. The biology is really picky. So that has to be made in a very specific form. And obviously the form, in, in my experience with my patients, the form that's in the bottle goes directly in your stomach, goes right up into your head. Now, the interesting part about that is it goes into the head, it becomes coenzyme A, which then helps to make acetylcholine. So it turns out one of the things that was mysterious to me was, why would my patients need 100 milligrams when this book was written and they used 400 milligrams? Why is every other publication say 400 milligrams is the right dose of pantothenic acid? Clearly, I and my clients are in a different place. Now, that would suggest that having vitamin D around in the brain somehow changes what happens, okay? So it takes me several years to put this together, but ultimately, what, what um, B5 makes in the brain is acetylcholine. What it makes in the adrenal is cortisol. So B5 becomes coenzyme A and it comes into the brain as B5. It is then incorporated into coenzyme A. Coenzyme A is the donor for the acetyl group that makes acetylcholine. So there's choline, there's coenzyme A that has the acetyl group on it, and then choline acetyltransferase is the final enzyme that makes um, acetylcholine. There is one article that happens to publish based on Walter's original information. Okay, vitamin D has receptors in this, these nuclei, the, this particular reticular nucleus. So it's related to the reticular activation or the sleep-wake portion of the brain. That particular anatomy, when the vitamin D goes into the nucleus, what does it do? It makes, it expresses the protein choline acetyltransferase. So it turns out that vitamin D is one of three components that must come together to make acetylcholine. Now, why would we care about acetylcholine? Here's why. It turns out the first thing that happened to me was I looked this up and acetylcholine, and I'm a neurologist, I think in terms of neurotransmitters. I can't think of what acetylcholine does in the brain. I like they're big blank, okay? If you ask me what serotonin does, what dopamine does, what GABA does, there aren't that many articles that are saying, hey, you're acetylcholine deficient. But if you were just to open the textbook about the autonomic nervous system, you'll find that the parasympathetic nervous system is run completely on acetylcholine. It's used in a lot of different parts of the body, but we have lots of publications that show everybody who's sick, both sleep disorders and not, all have sympathetic tone that's too high. Mm -hmm. We assumed that their sleep disorder has caused them to be under stress and therefore their epinephrine, norepinephrine side is too high. But what if, what if we have a deficiency on the acetylcholine side? So 
that implies a lot of things. Now, one of the things that happened to me is before I'm about to give the second lecture, which was, oh, I just stumbled into this B5 stuff and I want it to be more than just, I think it's a hypothesis. Well, I open up these textbooks about sleep and it says acetylcholine actually manages our level of alertness during the day and allows us to fall asleep and to transition through multiple phases of sleep at night and to make us paralyzed. And it actually is one of the neurotransmitters. When you look at the anatomic drawings that show you all the neurotransmitters that are involved. The thing that's weird about this whole story is nobody ever talks about acetylcholine. All I had in my brain was, oh, neuromuscular junction, myasthenia, you know, so it turns out we don't have any drugs for acetylcholine. There aren't any except nicotine. When you and I were originally in pharmacology, what we were taught was acetylcholine hits nicotinic receptors or muscarinic receptors. So it turns out that one, there are a lot of connections between nicotine and neurologic illness, but two, if you just open up the journal articles about the, in the last 10 years about ADD, ADHD, so that has become an epidemic at the same time. The authors of these primary researchers showing that the frontal lobes, acetylcholine and nicotinic receptors are what directs our attention during the day. And then the most bizarre concept is acetylcholine makes us awake and focused. Then a switch flips, we come asleep. And it's really, a, it's not gradual. It is day, night, boom. Now we're asleep, and then acetylcholine, the exact same chemical, allows us to transition between the phases of sleep and get normally paralyzed. Now that's already published. So now with that information, I now have many, many patients who have sleep disorders. I've finished out using the large doses of B50 because the pain came back at three months. Now we're all running on whatever the amount that's being made by our stomach bacteria. And then there's a next phase, which is as we sleep better and better and better, it appears that the brain actually pays attention to the fact that one, we've actually had 10 years of deferred repairs, repairs that we didn't get accomplished. Now we're sleeping really, really well. And the brain actually tries to go into a repair phase that requires longer time spent in sleep. So most of my clients are just interested in sleeping normally, but it turns out that the brain is actually designed to say, you know, you really weren't sleeping well for the last 15 years and I had to put off all these things that I needed to do. The brain is actually organized to say, if the vitamin D stays 60 to 80, everything must be perfect. I'm actually going to switch into I remember every single deferred repair that I didn't make. If you will just give me a few more of these building blocks, i.e. B vitamins, minerals, A and C, the things that we use to make these repairs, I will actually undertake sleeping longer than eight hours. More importantly, longer than the normal amount of deep sleep and REM sleep. And I will actually make those repairs for you. You had another question that I can jump to about the use of these in the brainstem. Would you like me to go to that or? Yeah, yeah. I was th th questioning about vitamin D, but if it's the B vitamins in conjunction with it, that's fine too. I, I, I'm curious if it affects 
other cells because the new evidence suggests that each cell indeed has a circadian clock. Absolutely. So here's the, here's the part that fits with that. So um, growing off of what you said about the cellular clock, we now have evidence that, and I use this cell because we think of it as useless, but if you take a fat cell, a single fat cell, and you grow it in a Petri dish and you grow a whole bunch of them, so there's this huge mound of fat cells. If you're paying attention and you actually record what these cells secrete, what do they loose from their, the cell? What do they push out of their cells? What can you measure in the Petri dish? You'll see that they do something different during the day than they do at night. That also implies in every other cell that we've looked, like oligodendrocytes, which are one of the support cells in the brain, they make different things during the day than what they make at night. That also will imply that when the brain is sending out signals to the cells throughout the brain, there may be a signal that has one effect during the day because the cell hears that effect and it knows that it's daytime. And it may have a different effect during the night. So because we've left that piece out, we're just beginning to have literature that suggests, oh, we study the body by taking out single cells and looking at what they're doing. We pay attention, even when they don't have a brain, even when they're not connected to the brain, they are still absolutely entrained to the day-night cycle of our planet. That means if you never get into the repair phase, you don't get into the messages that tell the cells to do the repairs that they need, you slowly over time are prevented from keeping up your nightly maintenance. The second piece is that based on that first gal and everybody else that I've talked to since then, you can be asleep for 10 hours, you can be asleep for 12 hours and not do a single repair. If you don't get into deep sleep, you do not get the refreshment or the feeling as though we've been rested and repaired. You're asleep by our formal definition but you have not gone into these repair phases. There are several other things about that I think are important to note, to mention that are linked to the D. So one of the things that's all over the internet is vitamin D needs to be taken with vitamin K. Well, vitamin D is a very complex chemical and it actually has in the receptor. So we take that chemical in, it sits in a receptor. That receptor inside the nucleus is like a two-seater convertible. It has two seats. In order to get the action, which is it makes a certain protein be expressed or made, it has to have two people sitting in it. That means when the vitamin D arrives, it can't do the job by itself. It needs something else. Vitamin K is the second occupant for bone. That means it is the control factor that makes a difference if you're low in D and low in K, then just giving one will not do the job, but- And that's K2, just to be specific. Yes, it is. And by the way, it is my belief that the normal microbiome was the primary source of that K2. Mm -hmm. you bring back the normal microbiome, you're doing another thing. You're doing many other things, but I think that's one of the, that's one of the reasons why I don't make a big deal out of the K, is that if you bring back the microbiome, it's true that you don't know what the dose is, but that is what most of us were running on before GNC yeah. and Joker You don't exist. need a heck of a lot. You only need microgram quantities, about 150 microgram. Yeah. It's not a lot. And the bacteria, 
have been known to make K2 for many, many years. So the second piece is you asked a question about entrainment to the day-night cycle. There's a huge body of literature that talks about light perception through the eye. And what they don't mention is it's through the eye through retinoids, i.e. retinoids like vitamin A. So the right, vitamin A plays a role in the retina. It then goes into the pineal and it helps us be on target to follow the 24 hour cycle of our planet. So there's a lot of literature about vitamin A and sleep as well. So it is my belief that vitamin A is probably the second occupant in all of vitamin D's uses in the brain that have to do with the sleep-wake cycle. So vitamin D being a hormone, by definition, it has hundreds of effects throughout the body and may in each separate organ actually express different things. It is my belief that there, there are hundreds of different locations where D is active in the brain, and I think it may well have a second occupant that's different in those locations. No one's ever paid any attention. No one's had the presence of mind to explore that. For instance, vitamin D entered in neurology through the MS literature four or five years before I ever got into it, after you've been already doing it for 10 years. So it probably entered around 2008 or nine. No, it, it, it was actually Klassen or Klassen. Um, it was Klassen. Maybe I'm wrong on it, but he, he did, there was epidemiological research that suggested the association. Now, obviously, so, correlation is not causation, but at least that got people to think that there may be a connection here. And it, and it was clearly related to latitude. Yes. And so all of us who heard that, I, I remember very clearly sitting in this lecture hall and there are like thousands of us in there just went, oh, well, that's why it doesn't happen at the equator. Okay. Now, the thing that they missed, because they were so focused on T cells and in, in MS, is that Walter Stumpf had it published in the 80s that their vitamin D receptors ring the lateral ventricles. So they actually are, a, vitamin D is pivotal for the blood brain barrier and the blood nerve barrier. That means D directly affects the ability of our own white cells to penetrate, for infectious organisms to penetrate. So many of the diseases that are linked to MS and then other diseases where we see lateral ventricle ring with these white marks in elderly people, those are all directly in vitamin D related. I think, I don't know this literature well, but I think what we'll find is that vitamin D has a lot of its actions on the astrocytes. The astrocytes are cells that link the blood-brain barrier. They actually make up the blood-brain barrier. They have a little process that hooks around the blood vessel and then transmits messages that come through the blood to 80 or 90 nerve cells, neurons around them. So it's my belief that we're gonna find out that the astrocytes play a huge role and they are heavily connected to vitamin D. So one, I think this, the major takeaway from my studying vitamin D is this chemical is extraordinarily complex. That if we simplify it and we focus only on D2, currently, even though it was very clear after four patients, I gave little prescriptions of D2, the little green pill, 50,000 units, that was the only prescription yeah. for vitamin D. It's not D3, it's, which your body makes, but D2. Yeah. Now, that's completely crazy. We're now 70 years, 70 years after the discovery of this, we are still giving out a chemical that no human, bird, reptile, insect makes on their skin. None of us make that. 
it's an, it's an old, old chemical that rats, because they are nocturnal, have to be able to use that they get from the fungus that's in the grain that they eat. We are still giving that out as a prescription. That is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in medicine, frankly. It's still persisted today. Yes, that is still the recommendation. I saw a client today, and it's not that the caregiver is uninformed or is not caring. It's that the recommendation is still 50,000 of D2 once a week. I gave it to four of my patients, and they all came back and said, you nearly killed me with that stuff. They were the absolute worst affected. But so for, fortunately, D3 is one of the cheapest supplements on the market. It's almost free. It's free. You can go outside and let it happen on your skin. Yeah, yeah. I haven't taken vitamin D supplement in well over 10 years. And my last record, uh, D level was, I think, 83 nanograms. Yeah. In December, it was terrible. Yeah. yeah. I've learned that I have to be careful now. I Most of my, the average of... The dosing of vitamin D is extremely complex and most of what is written about it on the internet and in most of the, all of the studies are opinion studies, in my view. Currently, it's still just opinions, but my patients on the average were taking 10,000 a day to keep their blood level the same in the first winter. In the second winter, almost all of us had to go down a little bit to 7,500. Now, I cannot take more than 1,000. That implies that it is really a matter of having many holes. Deficiency has caused all these hundreds of areas where D is being used that we really are using more at the beginning. And then you have to be very attentive to the fact that slowly over time, you know, I'm in my 10th year, slowly over time, the amount that you need, it's possible that when the FDA was asked to look at this in the 60s, that in a population that was not D deficient yet, because we didn't have sunscreen, there were no recommendations to stay out of the sun, that 1,000 IU was really an appropriate dose as the maximum to give. That's well, no, there, there was also fear studies based on obscure studies published in India that 2,000 units of vitamin D was toxic, and they, that those studies have since been debunked. Uh, because obviously, as you just quoted, 10,000 units is a pretty typical dose that gets people healthy. Yeah. And you just but at least initially, and that's a good point that you brought out, that it tends to go down with time and you don't want yeah. to stay the same dose, which highlights the importance of regular monitoring. You just cannot take this frivolously or carelessly. You have to monitor yourself. That's absolutely true. That is the most important part. And I, want, I wanted to speak to what you had commented on earlier about the B vitamins. The other interesting thing for me was to know that because I entered this whole field from the point of view of sleeping better. So my concept was not let's just all be unconscious, okay? I, I don't care about it being unconscious. I care because when I see my patients go on a CPAP device and they stay in deep sleep, they start to be better, they feel better. They have fewer pills, their blood pressure goes down. They are actually healing better. That, that concept then means anything that I can do to make someone enter and stay in deep sleep the normal amount is a good thing. Now, here's what happened. It turns out as you sleep more, you need more bees. I mean, that is mind boggling, but what really happened was, and there was this funny time frame. So if you'll remember, I said at three months, we had to come off the big dose of bees because we were on our bacterial production plus what I was taking as separate supplement. So then I stop it. And I'll just give you what happened to me personally, because it was happening at the same time as my patients, but I was struggling 
with how to understand what was happening to my body at the same time. So I throw away all the vitamins except for vitamin D and I say, hey, I've got my microbiome back, I should be good to go. And about six months of really, really good sleep, I start to have that same peculiar uh, buttock pain. And it's exactly the same as what I had when the bees were too high and before I started the bees. And very tentatively, because I had gotten a lot of pain, I stayed on the bees for too long. And I started to be able to feel stiff and old in the morning. So I went to a multivitamin that had five milligrams of pantothenic acid. And three months later, I still had this weird pain at the end of the day where I couldn't sit down. And then I went on two of them. And in a day, the pain went away again. So the weird part for me was, one, I had started on 500 milligrams of that stuff. Now, I got restless legs from it. but And then I went to 100. And now I'm apparently able to tell, my body can tell the difference in five milligrams of this stuff. And apparently I need more now than I did two months ago. Why? Why would there be any variation in that? So there was a background concept in my mind that it's not that I'm looking for some answer. It's just that I'm struggling with, okay, there are all these different recommendations on the dosing of the B vitamins. So I went back to the original article. So the 1910, 1930s, how did they come up with what, <coughs> what were B vitamins? The original ability to purify them is a fascinating story. They were all found as bacterial growth factors. Mm -hmm. So we take an Erlenmeyer, we take a, a bottle, like we're making bread, so we have we have brewer's yeast that we use to make beer, and we use yeast to make bread, and we sit it on the counter. So we, if you've ever made beer or bread, there's this specific set of steps. You put the yeast in there, and then you put water in it, and you let it sit at a specific temperature. You can't boil it, and you can't make it too cold. What you're really doing is you're letting all this bacteria grow in there. And those bacteria, it turns out, are using the D2 that's being made by the yeast that you've put in, and the bacteria are making these eight B vitamins that they're feeding the yeast with. So the original liquid that was in that bottle that we made beer with, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that was called the anti-polyneuritic factor. That's wrapped into these articles. So the healers of the late 1800s, early 1900s, were using that same liquid, just like I'm doing it today. It had Bs and D in it. And they're giving it to people and it takes away the burning in their feet. Now, the, the interesting part about that is nobody has published so far, as far as I can find, and it might have come out this year, studying our microbiome to see if vitamin D is a cofactor because it looks like the microbiome changed when the D went low. Now, the interesting part of that is there are many articles that document that even though we know the names of these 200 species that live in our small intestine, and I happen to believe the small intestine is really the pivotal place, we have names for all of them and we have the DNA, we have the DNA footprint of every single one, but only 2%. So four species have been grown in a Petri dish. That means no one knows what the growth factors are. They haven't been successful in growing them. So if you go back, what you find is, oh, the B vitamins were found after we poured that liquid that we used to make beer into a Petri dish and we started to grow bacteria 
and name them after each other, okay? So the original doctors were still trying to figure out bacteria. Those were growth factors that helped the bacteria grow. And then in the 40s, we start to have this concept that, oh, vitamins, so we call them something. We realize that these are eight chemicals that are pivotal for our body to be correct, to have the correct biochemical production of many, many things. And we kind of miss the concept that they're made from the bacteria. I happen to believe that in probably the 1920s and 30s, the people who were doing the original microbiology probably did think that the B vitamins might have been produced by the small intestine, in the, in the small intestine, just because I can't believe that, that it didn't occur to them. But that has been lost from the literature. There are now two or three articles that substantiate this view. There was a really good one that looked at it in a slightly different way that was actually published in 2016, 15 before I wrote my article. So there are two or three people that are thinking, you know, it's quite possible that the right microbiome is about making the eight Bs. And it turns out now I've been doing this for a long time. Really all you have to do is have a D over 40. You don't even have to have it 60, 80. You have to have a D over 40. You have to have B50 or B100. You use that for three months. Your microbiome will be back. And if you never let your D fall below 40, you'll never lose them again. That's my belief. Well, unless you take antibiotics or you're taking, you know, f eating food loaded with glyphosate, there's a lot of things that decimate your, your microbiome. Other let, than me, let me comment on that. But thank you for bringing that up. I, I am completely freaked out by glyphosate, okay? So I've seen several lectures and I'm totally freaked out about it. You should be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is frightening, but I can only stop using Roundup in my home. I cannot stop my neighbor from using it across the street, which kind of freaks me out. Now, it's not that I don't believe that that's an important player. I'm stuck in this position where I'm sitting in my office with my client, and if I just tell them, oh, the toxic environment has led to your microbiome going bad, I haven't really helped them, okay? I, I've educated them, but their sleep is no better. So. It is my belief that glyphosate is still really important. I'm really glad people like you are on the bandwagon about getting it taken out. But I also got to see many of my patients get their microbiome back, live in the same environment, have the same eating habits, and actually get better. And there were several things about it that really struck me. One, humans did not make antibiotics. Humans have made several antibiotics since they first discovered them. But they were discovered at that same time when we grew bacteria in a petri dish and we noticed there was a clear area surrounding this white fuzzy stuff with the little black spots on it. And we discovered that they were secreting chemicals that killed their competitors. So one of the really important concepts of having a normal microbiome is it is not just in your small intestine and your colon. I actually smell different since my microbiome was back. So it comes all parts of your body, and now the literature is really strong to, to make the argument that we are actually like pig pen. We walk around with this cloud, of bacteria, viruses, and fungi that cover us in our nose, in our mouth, in our skin, in our hair, all over us, and that those organisms are the ones that protect us from infections. Given a normal, in, a normal immune system, which is much more complicated than what we're talking about. But if you bring back the normal microbiome, our bugs are making antibiotics. 
they make chemicals that kill other competitors. They keep the costidium difficile under control in our body. So one of the things that I've been able to see happen is my clients can still take antibiotics and they actually will reconstitute their microbiome normally. As long as they keep their D over 40, they will grow back. I personally believe that the appendix is where it is and designed the way it is to be a little tiny library of all the, of the, all the bacteria. So it's not that I don't believe that antibiotics change the, what's going on in there. They do, okay? They absolutely do. However, I don't think we have to be as afraid of them. And I, but I, and I, I will mention one other thing. This is connected to what you said. There are two things that are being proposed now to be important about the microbiome. One, probiotics. I personally have used them. I spent a lot of money on them. My patients did. I think they're kind of worthless. If they would work, you would eat them for one month and then you'd be self-sustaining for the rest of your life. However, your other comment is about, I think, it was about feeding your bacteria. Okay, so there's another body of literature that I think is very important. Once you have the normal foursome, what we're really doing most of the time, even though we haven't thought of it this way, is we eat things that feed the bacteria. And what we eat absolutely has effect on who is living in that small intestine. So we eat, we feed the bacteria, and then the bacteria actually feeds us. That's not the way we've been looking at it. So I would then say all the literature that's talking about the effect that diet has on who lives inside you is absolutely pivotal. It's, and it's not like, oh, you just take these vitamins and everything's fixed. It's not that simple by a long shot. Yeah, so the, the other component though, with respect to choosing your food is making sure that it's organic for two primary reasons. One is that it, most of the antibiotics are not given to humans, they're given to animals. So that's where the largest concentration is. And it's not just the antibiotic, but it's the antibiotic resistant bacteria that are in there, plus the glyphosate. So although your perception is they may not have much influence on the uh, microbiome, wow. what it does have influence, and I think you should be really concerned about, is the mitochondria. And there's emerging evidence that mitochondrial function is really the core of health and chronic degenerative disease. So mitochondria, for those who aren't aware, are primitive bacteria inside your cells that are affected by antibiotics. So that's the last thing you ever want to do is impair your mitochondria. Yes, there's strategies you can do to upregulate it with mitochondrial biogenesis and exercise and activating PGC1-alpha, uh, but you want to limit the damage. That's why it would be ultra cautious. I would personally not take an antibiotic unless my life depended on it. I second that entire statement. I think that's brilliant. I, I particularly, I'm very interested in the mitochondrial stuff. And I really think, um, I haven't listened to whether or not you've done anything about deuterium and mitochondria, but I'm, I'm very, very interested. Oh yeah. I personally, I have the record, US record for the lowest deuterium level. <laughs> as, an, as an Awesome. And we don't have to go there because I'm somewhat skeptical now. I'm not convinced as I was initially when I started my journey in deuterium, but I think it's, a, and it's certainly way too expensive for anyone to consider unless they're dying of cancer. Uh, but uh, another issue, 
partially related. But I think I want to get back to the central points, which are the vitamin D and the, and the panathenic acid. Now, I'm particularly curious. Uh, you had mentioned that you had restless leg syndrome. Did you perceive that was an artifact of your B experimentation, or was it an independent symptom that seemed to improve with your process? Because there are some other uh, B vitamins and B vitamin metabolites that might be factors here that I'd like to discuss. Very, very good question. So one, my, most of my clients and my patients, I got their restless legs to go away just by doing the routine, which is to improve their sleep. But there were a few of us, including me, who were outliers who never got better from the restless legs. And it's only in retrospect that it has become clearly um, known that the categories of SNRIs or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors and SSRIs um, are some of the causative chemicals for restless legs. So the first thing to comment on is restless legs is in its formal form is just when you're falling asleep. So you have to be awake when it's happening. So it speaks to not having the right ratios of neurotransmitters. So it's not that even though B5 becomes a neurotransmitter, most of the time when we're talking about these vitamins, they're always being converted into neurotransmitters. It's the neurotransmitters that make all of these things happen. So my restless leg has still stayed. However, about a year ago, there was a front page article in the New York Times about how the psychiatrists are now admitting that they themselves, when they want to get off the SNRIs, have to reduce them by taking 10 little balls out of those, out of those capsules, okay? I had tried several times, and this is really heart, heart-rending for me because I gave out those medicines like candy, okay? Mm -hmm. When they came out, I was giving out antidepressants like candy. I started taking them myself. I felt so much better. But now 20 years later, it appears to me that there are permanent effects, hopefully not absolutely permanent. So my feedback from my clients is it took them six months to a year after being off the SNRIs before the restless legs completely went away. So one, I know my restless legs came at the same time when I started on Effexor. So I'm currently towards the end of tapering off my Effexor over a one year span. It's taken me a whole year. It's working really well, but I had tried to decrease it two or three times before when we started to hear these reports about it being related. So I'm interested in seeing what happens to me because my regimen, even though it has improved my sleep, I'm now pain-free, I'm 65, about to turn 65 and I can still run. I've actually screwed myself up a couple of times, again, my D too high. So it's not like this is a simple one and done. It's like you keep, the, keep going with this concept over time. But ultimately, it is my hope that my restless legs will go away. Now, most of the people that I've treated, their restless legs go away. It, it's not a single uh, pathway to it. So there's a connection to iron, there's a connection to iron and ferritin, there's a connection to what other drugs you're on. And ultimately, it, many people attach it to the periodic limb movements of, of sleep. I think that they're actually separate. But ultimately, most of the people that were in my practice who had restless legs, all they had to do was get the D better, get their microbiome better, adjust the Bs, and as their sleep became better. So the cure is not the vitamins. The cure is the sleep. So as uh -oh. the sleep gets better, the brain rearranges the ratios of the neurotransmitters. Let, let uh, me give you another point of information that you might 
consider investigating in your trials. Uh, one of my good friends is James Clement, and uh, he's one of the leading NAD clinical researchers in the United States. And one of the few researchers that actually has a mass spec to measure NAD levels and actually published a landmark study early in 2019 that documented the rapid decline in NAD levels. Now, NAD, as you know, is a, is a massively important coenzyme, but it's also uh, one of its precursors, vitamin B3. Uh, yes, it can be derived from the diet through tryptophan, but that's essentially not going to work because for every milligram, every milligram of uh, NAD that you reconstruct from uh, de novo synthesis from tryptophan, you need 70 milligrams of tryptophan. So the average person is only get, like, going to get like two milligrams of NAD, which is absolutely insufficient. So most of it is recycled. And uh, actually, and there's an interesting B3 deficiency, you probably well know that many people died in the early 20th century from pellagra. And pellagra yes. was niacin, but it, they didn't die from niacin deficiency. They died from NAD deficiency. Uh, and you could actually cure pellagra with relatively low doses of, of, of niacin and, and remove it because you got a little vitamin NAD. But your, your NAD levels are actually, it's just like vitamin D. You can get 20 units and probably uh, abort or abolish uh, rickets, but that doesn't mean you're healthy. You're still deficient. So yeah. you need an optimal level. And the, the, the challenge here, as I implied earlier, is that as you get older, your NAD levels fall quite dramatically. I mean, really dramatically. The older you get, the worse it is to the point where it's almost immeasurable by the time you're 80. So there, there may be a strategy where providing some of the higher vitamin B3, vitamin B3 precursor or vitamin by niacin as a supplement, you know, maybe 25 milligrams twice a day. Probably, Can I take it as NAD? No, you, well, here, you can take NAD precursors. And actually, James and I are doing some researches to see which the, the, what the best ones are. There are typically two right now, nicotinamide riboside NR and NMN or nicotinamide mononucleotide, both of which are orally available. And there's some significant question at higher doses, which you may need them, that they work well, if at all, because they get methylated in the liver. But there are some other strategies like liposomal NMN that is just coming on the market now. And uh, actually NAD suppositories or transdermal. You could actually take NAD as an IV, but it costs over $1,000. There's some electrolyte patches or electrical battery patches that you can use transdermally that are much less expensive, closer to $17 than 1000 so, uh, you know, there are some other strategies, but that's something. And anyway, the reason I mentioned this is this investigator, Clement, he has restless leg syndrome too. And that is his biological parameter. When his NAD levels go below a certain threshold, his restless leg syndrome comes back. That's fascinating. That's okay. How, so that's how I we know. I have NAD questions yeah. about that. There's, there is a body. So one of the things that that speaks to is, as you get into this further, what you realize is the reason why you want to give all eight is because, for instance, thiamine is a cofactor for breaking acetylcholine and dopamine. So all eight of these Bs have an intertwined set of, of responsibilities. So when I'm trying to change the dosing, even though I may say B5 dose should be this, all eight should come along. That is really the base groundwork that doesn't really speak to all the other genetic variabilities that each one of us have as an individual, okay? And I personally think you're the pro in that area. I am definitely not. But that, if I get rid of my um, 
SNRI and my restlessness mm -hmm. doesn't go away, I may actually try that before because I have to take this dopamine stuff. And frankly, I don't want to have to take any pharmaceuticals. Right. I, yeah, that, that, is, the, go that is the goal. As is, is you come to appreciate as you've grown wiser in your clinical practice that relying on drugs is not the solution because they only are symptomatic band-aids in almost every single case. I, I really have to say that I was really healthy as a younger person. And as soon as I got to a place where I was going to have to look at whether or not I was going to have to take those drugs that I was giving, I was like, I'm not taking those. That's not, you know, that's not going to be in my body. No, I'm not doing that. That completely changed my point of view. And then as I got further and further into sleep, I personally have a very difficult time being in hospitals now because I really feel personally responsible in a ridiculous way. But I feel like I betrayed these other human beings that I really am not focusing on how does the body, what you and I are discussing is how does the body repair itself? How mm -hmm. can you show up on this planet and not ever need a doctor? That concept is not being pushed right now. I mean, that's really part of what you've been doing and you're the first people to do that online. But that is not taught in medicine. We don't No, no, it's not. That way. And that is a tragedy. Yeah, and there's some there's some sinister behind the scenes variables that uh, prevent people from applying this and that's why I went to the public and attempted yeah. to teach them and thankfully catalyzed many others who had similar uh, intentions. And uh, we're making a dent. And people know fundamentally that the pharmacological model is, is fatally flawed. Uh, the vast majority of the public, I think, public appreciates that. So, but I want to get back to this sleep thing. And, and I don't want people to believe that you're pushing a magic bullet. Because in your presentation at, in Nashville, in uh, ACAM, you had a pretty comprehensive list, which I agree with. It's that it basically relates to sleep hygiene and you know, restricting blue light exposure at night and making sure you get sunlight exposure in the daytime and, you know, all the other variables. So this is the vitamin D, panathenic acid, B-complex process improving your diet is part of that entire strategy. Absolutely. So the stuff that I have on my website is not because it's the only important part. I am not a health expert. Yeah. I, I do consider myself a sleep expert. I don't consider myself a vitamin D expert, and I don't think there is one on the planet. Um, I, I think that the reason why I'm a, a sleep expert is I have listened to thousands of people talking about their sleep. Yeah. You're, really you're the rare, not most, most physicians don't do that. So I know. And it was, it was so sad for me to be with people who I just got them on the CPAP and they come back and they say, well, I just went to see my CPAP doctor and he or she said, oh, you wear this or you die. And that's it. That's it. That's the end of it. Okay. And, or the per, the poor slob who's been had insomnia for 20 years that nobody wants to talk to them. They won't listen to them. They just go. And, and I was the same way. I'm not going to say that I was any different, but as I began to understand how important I had already slept well, those of us in the world who sleep well really don't understand what those people are complaining about. It is a slow, miserable death. Once you have your hands on anything, that will help somebody sleep better. So my stuff is only, the stuff that I have on my side is things that were overlooked. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's the only important thing. There are hundreds of sites that will tell you about 
circadian rhythms, taking away the EMF, the electromagnetic forces in your bedroom, the blue light. It's not that what I have is the be all end all. It's that it's a really important little piece that you need to set in there. Um, and I also happen to think it connects the epidemics of the sleep disorder to the weight gain and the IBS. So Panda's work, I can't remember his first name, but Sachin, Sachin out of uh, Salk Institute. Oh my God, that guy is yeah, he's a gr I love him. Yeah, brilliant. And yeah. such a logical step-by-step -step lecture. He's amazing. So everything he has said about how we eat, when we eat, all that is also playing a role in the background. And if you add, now I have the right microbiome back, what I got to see after I did the B100 was my patients would start to come back with weight loss. The D by itself did not do that. So there's a link between those two that end up, and, and one other really important comment. What I got to see when I got the microbiome back, so keep in mind, I'm not, I'm not culturing anything. I am making an assumption based on my patients coming back saying things like, I haven't pooped daily since the day I was born. Okay, and this is a 32-year-old who had one, you know, one delivery, and she's a mess from then on, a million pills and a million things wrong with her. And I've been working with her for five years, and we've been doing vitamin D, and nothing's, you know, things are better. But so, and she, she gets the, the B100 back with the D, and, and now I poop every day. You know, I mean, it's just phenomenal. Now, the fascinating part of that is that is just the first step that means you've, you've brought back an organ of the body. It's like your liver went away and now you've brought it back, okay? Now the next thing I got to see was IBS is just the beginning. I had all these people that had all these things wrong with them and I kept wondering, are those things wrong with vitamin D or do they? So for instance, iron deficiency anemia, that I had some men who are not menstruating obviously, we're getting iron infusions and their hematologist said, oh, you just can't absorb iron. I'm like, that didn't happen when I was in practice. I'm not a hematologist, but eight months after the microbiome comes back, those people start to start to trickle in saying, hey, I went to my hematologist yesterday to get my iron infusion and they won't give it to me because they say my iron level's okay. So it is my belief that many of the things that we are documenting, okay, this person is low in magnesium, this person has a selenium that's low, this one has this, there had to be an organ of the body that was running that piece. As far as I know, nobody talks about that. But what it appears to me is that the microbiome has actually been responsible in the background for making sure that every animal on the planet that has a little enzyme, that has a little copper inside in the middle, or a little zinc or a little iron, that they absorb these in the right amounts and they have proper stores. So one of the things that fascinated me was I was doing a multivitamin as a routine, limiting the, the doses of the bees because unfortunately, if you get your microbiome back and then you pick up a micro, uh, multivitamin that has 50 milligrams or 50 micrograms of all the bees, you will eventually have insomnia. So I'm using this multivitamin, not really thinking much but realizing in retrospect oh they're really filling their manganese stores their zinc stores their copper stores their iodine stores all of these little things that we're seeing more and more in functional medicine or the naturopaths as they're measuring blood levels of those 
So I personally think that getting the microbiome back in most people that are pretty sick is just day one, and then they need to have some supplementation, not huge doses, but some supplementation for a year or two after that, and then keep an open mind about the fact that eventually we'll get to a place where we don't need to supplement most things with the parent, you know, parenthetically, unless I have a particular genetic weakness where I need to do something else. All right, well, great. So you've provided a pretty comprehensive story, which is really the characteristic of a good present presenter is that they tell it in a story form and you do a good job of that. So we have the story and I'm wondering what resources you could recommend, uh, books or papers you've written, uh, your website, that people can see a protocol that you've developed you know, with and how many patients is now? 5,000, 7,000 patients? I think I'm up to 7,000. Now I'm a sleep coach and I'm still doing this as I'm no longer. You're not, a, you're not a neurologist. I mean, you always are a neurologist. You're board certified, but, but you're not a practicing neurologist. You're a sleep Correct. coach. Okay, as uh, resources, I have a website, it's drgomanak.com. You don't even have to spell it correctly. I'm the only Gomanak on the planet. You just get something that's kind of like gomiflagy and vitamin D and it'll pop right up. And <clears throat> I have a protocol, I have a workbook that allow you to work through this over a full year. Right on the homepage, it'll say quick start basics and it takes you through which vitamins to buy, how to get your D levels done, why you need a B12. The website is dedicated to the why. I'm very invested in the why. I, I feel like I saw these things happen to my patients. They can't be making it up. I mean, five people come in in a week and they don't know each other and they don't even have the same diseases and they all tell me the same thing. That means the basic truth is always what the patient says about their body. And then it's my job to see if I can find a scientific explanation for that, either in animals and other humans. So. There's a lot about the why that's on my site, both under a menu tab that's called See and Learn. I have lots of written material. I have three videos. I have a separate section that's called Webinars that has podcasts that you learn better by video. And I have a, a workbook that you can buy. I also have one-on-one -on -one sessions that you can see me. It's called Work Together, and you can easily go to that. Um, I think many people who are not really very sick, who just want to add this to their um, their health regimen can actually do it easily with the workbook. That's the intention anyway. Mm -hmm. And I also have to comment that once you get better from this D microbiome point of view, what we all want is to be healthy and have long lives. Mm -hmm. Sleep is one of four basic pillars, sleep, diet, exercise, and spirituality. And you can't really short any of those and be a happy fully healthy content, content person, okay? I don't spend a lot of time talking about the other parts, but they're very important as well. Well, great. And just curious, uh, because you are a sleep coach, how many people who adopt your program or who come in uh, using CPAP are able to go off of it successfully? Wonderful question. And in fact, I do not know the answer to that. What I'm hoping at the moment, and here's why. Well, my patients got better. So here's what I would hear. I've been wearing CPAP for four years. I forgot my CPAP when I went to the Deerleys. So I'm in Texas. So guy goes to the Deerleys, hangs out with his buddies. And he says, you know, before I started using CPAP, 
they would threaten to throw me off the balcony because I woke up the entire house and now I forgot my CPAP and I actually felt really good. Okay. Now, can I get that person to pay a thousand dollar copay to do another sleep study? No, I couldn't. Okay. So I couldn't within clinical practice and my, so what I'm hoping will happen is two things. One, the dentists who have really got into my stuff. That's why I was at ACAM and AAP. Right. The dentists have an amazing opportunity to do oximetry before, oximetry a year later. They can do overnight sleep studies, and it's relatively cheap. The second thing is we're going to have all this, all this data generated by these people putting on Fitbits, putting on Aura Rings. That data is actually brand new data. It is not the same to take someone, give them the chemicals they were lacking, and then watch what happens to their sleep. We don't really know what's going to happen to those people. We don't know what the normal amount of REM is. Asking a normal 16-year-old who's been sleep deprived to do a sleep study and then generalizing this is normal, this is not normal, is not the same as what's, how is the brain going to react in the first year in a person who's been given back the building block. So I think that, that data is not there. They have not been studying my patients who are miserable chemically and with so one none of the studies have been done so i can't give you a percentage but i can tell you i had patients who had been terribly affected i had one guy who was like the extreme who actually couldn't use cpap sitting upright because they couldn't get the pressures up high enough who walked along and fell asleep walking and fell and broke his jaw who ultimately fixed himself. It wasn't just with the D and the B50, there was another genetic issue, but that is proof of concept that the chemical neurotransmitter basis, this is not in someone who has a tiny airway, okay? This is in someone who has a problem with stopping breathing because they get too paralyzed based on the brain. If you get the chemicals right, I believe that the brain is actually organized to say, okay, I know exactly what to do. I can fix this. So I think that CPAP is potentially able to be taken away, but I don't think any of the studies have been done yet. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. Good answer. And just another final question is uh, the number of people who are on CPAP, uh, if you could divide them into those who have central sleep apnea, where there's not a mechanical physical obstruction barrier, which is you know, a big part of what was discussed at the meeting we were at, versus the ones that's, where it's, a, it's an, in the brain. Um, as I showed you on, during that lecture, um, I believe that sleep apnea is actually on a continuum with central apnea. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the actual way that the nucleus is organized, it's in the, this is a nucleus that runs our ability to get paralyzed while we're sleeping. Yeah, it's, a specific, it's not a nucleus of a cell. It's, a new, it's an area of the brain responsible. Sorry, it's a clumping of multiple cells that do certain things. And it yeah. turns out that all of us get paralyzed when we're in deep sleep, which is kind of creepy. Uh, and it turns out that there are certain cells that are attached and turn off this part, the oral airway, the throat, the tongue, that means it makes them weak and paralyzed during the time that we're sleeping. There's another set of cells right next to it that are responsible for paralyzing the diaphragm and the chest wall. 
And then there are a whole bunch of cells that are responsible for paralyzing our limbs. To me, that means if I can show that these cells are just screwing up in terms of their firing rate, because what's really happening when you get too paralyzed is that cell is firing at a certain rate. It's supposed to be a perfect rate so you're perfectly paralyzed. We were really designed to be able to be paralyzed enough that we can't cry out, but we can still swallow and we keep our airway open. And we all animals get paralyzed. The dinosaurs got paralyzed when they were sleeping. This is extraordinarily old. It was engineered many millions of years ago. That means when it screws up throughout the planet within a 40 year span, that's really important because this part was actually designed to work perfectly. So it is my belief that if you make those cells just a little sicker, then you get central apnea. Yes, it's true that people have small airways and we can talk at length about how that might come about as part of this story, but my regimen is good for somebody who has insomnia, it's good for someone who has sleep apnea, it's good for central apnea. In fact, I think that this is what the way that sudden infant death syndrome happened. That means all we have to do is get the pregnant moms have a D level that's reasonable so the baby gets her D and you don't have any SIDS anymore. Yeah, I know a few uh, uh, friends that were physicians who testify as expert witnesses in those SIDS cases where the parents are accused of neglect and even their, their children are taken away. And, you know, fortunately, they're able to successfully uh, get them back with the, the help of these experts. So it's a sad tragedy. The D is important. There's no question, especially in SIDS. So. You've uh, really compiled some incredible information. I'm sure that if you're watching this, you'll agree. And uh, maybe you can give us the, your, the, your website name again so that people can go there for more information to, to, to get this manual. And also, if uh, that doesn't work, to even consider consulting you for a, an appointment. Thank you for the opportunity. So it's www.dr. Gomenak, no dot, D-R-G-O-M-I-N-A-K.com. And come and see my stuff. I yeah. Have a book that's called Right Sleep. And um, you can enter that way or through my, to my website. Great. Well, I really appreciate your novel approach, uh, relatively unusual for physicians who that were trained conventionally to really independently come, come to this conclusion and really have your patient's best interest at heart rather than just perceiving it as a job. So you know, we almost every one of us go into medicine with altruistic reasons to serve humanity and, you know, help people. But sadly, that initial motivation gets eroded out of almost every one of us through time. And I'm sure you've seen it in your colleagues. So it's really a pleasant surprise to see, one, to see someone who's uh, kept it. So congratulations. I, I have to thank you very much for inviting me. You are like the a very important part of this um, piece, and you always have been. I mean, you're kind of like the pinnacle of uh, having an alternative way to look at medicine, and I'm thrilled that you would invite me. It's, you've been one of my heroes for a long time. Well, thank you. No, <laughs> the purpose of, the, purpose of the, the site really is to present novel approaches to health, and you certainly had one in spades. So uh, thank you for what you're doing, and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks a lot.